Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Before, while you turn there, while you get ready, you can pull out your little app with the Bible, whatever you do, get there. Uh, while you're doing that, let me say this, next week, we, you know, we're going into November. For me, November, December is all about, you know, holidays, it gets me in the holiday mindset. And so, you know, the first three, three weeks of November that we spend together, what I want to do is I just want to spend some time... Uh, letting the scripture challenge us and encourage us a little bit when it comes to relationships and marriage, because I think that's a little bit of, we spend a lot of time with family and with each other during the holidays, and just try to invest into that a little bit. And of course, it, whether you've been married for a month or for 50 years, there's going to be stuff in there for you, but not don't just think that's what it's about. Because even if you're single and you plan to get married, or you're in a dating relationship, or you're single and you never plan to get married, there are going to be things in this, talking about relationships and stuff, that are going to help you, both in your relational life, but also, all of us, all of us, are somewhere down the line, if you haven't already, are going to be asked about uh, giving our advice, speak into other people's relationships. And we're going to find ourselves there. And when you're in that situation... You need to make sure that your advice that you speak through is not just your opinion, but it's opinion of based in truth. Because you're, I think when you give advice, you truly want to help someone, right? And so to help someone, you're not the, uh, the, the curator of all truth. And your opinion sometimes is just simply that. It's your opinion. And it may not be what is most helpful in the situation. So we want to make sure that any advice we give is advice uh, wrapped in truth. So, it's, so this series that we're going through, I'm really kind of excited about it because it's going to kind of a, take a different uh, avenue than maybe what you've heard a lot. But it's just look at what Scripture says here about relationships and particularly about the marriage relationship and that, that kind. So that's what we're going to jump into for the next uh, three weeks in December. And I, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we have been talking about in this series, talking about how the world that we're in is just so hungry for leadership. And, and that's on a global scale, you know, uh, and, and we see that. It's on a national scale. We see that, you know, just turn on the television, and you just get this sense that, hey, we just need leaders. We need people who truly will lead. We don't need politicians. We need leaders today, and we all feel that to some degree or another. But it's not just on, on that global or national level. You know, our, our, our homes and our our places of work, our friendships, the teams we're on, the community we're in, there's just this need for, for people to stand up and be the team captain in the moment. I mean, I can tell you, I can name you right now, situations and environments, organizations where there's a problem. And the problem may not be the result of a lack of leadership, but the persistence of the problem, the inability to overcome the problem is rooted in the lack of leadership in that situation. And, and all of us have been in those kind of environments. And all of us will be in, in environments where what is needed is not necessarily a person with a title, but it's, what is needed is someone to stand up and be the team captain in that moment to provide some leadership for forward movement. And I believe there's many times that person is you. That person is God wants to tap you and say, you are the one. And then you may or may not have the title, but you are the one in this moment that God wants to raise up to be the team captain for the family or for the friendship or for the team or for the office or for the school that you're at. The question is not whether God will do that. The question is when that moment comes, 
Will you be ready? And so that's why we're kind of jumping into this series and talking about leadership. And you may say, well, why are we doing this in church, you know? Maybe you go to leadership stuff that's out there. But why are we doing this church? Because there is no better leadership book. There's no book on this planet that has better leadership principles and examples than the Scripture. God gives us and rolls out for us what, a, what great leaders look like through Scripture. And, and you can even find examples of poor leadership as well. It's just a great leadership book. And, and so last week, we started kind of a case study of leadership. We, we, we started last week, this is kind of part two off of last week, where we looked at one of the greatest leaders of human history, and that is the guy by the name of Nehemiah. And we saw last week that his most important leader characteristic was not what he did, which is what we're going to look at today, and that is important. But his most important leader, leadership characteristic was not something that he did, but it was who he was. And that will always be the most important thing you bring into a situation is who you are. Because, as we said last week, wherever you go, one thing you always bring is you. You are wherever you go. Try it out at lunch. Go to lunch. See if you don't show up. You know, wherever you go, you are there. And you bring yourself into every situation. And that's why the most important leadership characteristic is who you are. And that's why you should always be working and never settled with the, the person and the character that you have because everywhere you go, you are there. You always bring you. And when we looked at Nehemiah, one of the things about who he was that made him such a transformational leader was he's a guy who, in his life, his life was not focused on the right here. His life was focused on the out there. Most people focus their life on the right here. Us, me, I, my agenda. But Nehemiah kind of gave God that responsibility to take care of him. And his focus was on the out there. You could say Nehemiah defined success as helping other people experience success. And he had that outside view. And that is what made him such a great leader. If you fail to grasp that, the great leaders always are more focused out there than they are right here. The great leaders always define success by helping other people experience success. If you don't get that, you can, you can go to all kinds of seminars and find out what leaders do, but if you don't get that, you are going to limit your leadership potential. And so we, we kind of wrestled with that last week, and we saw that, how it played out. So now that we've looked at who Nehemiah was and how important that is, and that's of utmost, the first thing, the foundation of great leaders is who they are. Let's spend a little time at looking what he did with a problem. And, and let's go back and revisit the problem that needed leadership. Remember, we talked about last week, the Israelites who under the old covenant were God's people. And the old covenant, God's people were an ethnic people. Under the new covenant in Christ, God's people are a spiritual people, those who've embraced Christ's forgiveness and grace. And so under the Old Testament, though, in Nehemiah's time, the covenant people, the people of God, were the Jewish people. And, and people of, the Jewish people had just enjoyed that favor of God, the protection of God, the blessing of God as a result of being God's people. And, and so, but, but over time, they began to take God for granted that, and they were enjoying and accepting God's protection and blessing, stiff-arming God's authority. God bless us, just don't mess with us. God bless us, protect us, but just don't require anything out of us. The truth of the matter is, <laughs> that not only sound, is ancient 
Judaism, but it sounds a lot like some people's modern Christianity. Bless me. Just don't require anything out of me. And that's how they lived. And they were constantly kind of moving away from God as they stiffed harm from that, but all the while expecting God's blessing and protection and forgiveness, grace and all that. And, and, and God kept saying, listen, listen, I love you too much to let you go. I love you too much to let you go. I love you too much. Stop, turn around, come back, come back. Years and years and years. And then finally God said, I love you too much to let you go. And he allowed the Babylonians, who were the one and only superpower of the day, to come in and invade and conquer the Israelites. As we said, the Babylonians knew how to conquer a country and keep it down. What they would do is they'd go in with their army. If you remember, we talked about this last week. They'd go in their army, and they would decimate the military. And then they would steal all the wealth, and that would just demolish their present. But they wouldn't just steal their wealth. They wouldn't just steal their present power. They would also steal their future. And how they did this was that they would round up all the young, bright, intuitive, charismatic young men. And they would take them. And those were the ones that would become the leaders. And When you steal away a leadership, you steal away the future. And they'd take these young men back to Babylon and they would re-educate them in the ways of the Babylonians and then they would put them into service as slaves in the king's government. All different kinds of jobs, often based upon your skill, your leadership capacity. And Nehemiah was one of these guys. And he actually, you know, I guess you could say got the best of a worse situation. He ended up becoming the king's cupbearer, which... In, what that meant was he was the king's food taster. That's how often kings were assassinated, was through food. And so he was the king's cupbearer. He would taste the food, drink the wine, taste all that the king would take in, and they'd kind of watch him, see if he lived. Okay, let's eat then, you know, when he lived. And so that, as a result of that, though, that was a pretty good job as a slave, as best as you can get as a slave, because he got to eat the king's food, which was the finest food in the nation. He got to live in the palace, which was a Probably the best house in the nation. He got to wear better clothes because you're not going to have someone just looking ratty in the king's courtroom. And, and so, you know, he kind of had the, he's still a slave and lost his freedom away from his people. It's not a great situation, but as far as bad situations, it's pretty good, especially in relation to the people that were left behind. The Babylonians decimated the wall around Jerusalem, and without a wall, you were just vulnerable to every band of thugs and thieves and armies and that would come by. And if you ever got any wealth, they would just come and steal it. So there was no economic activity. There was absolute vulnerability. There was poverty. And there was starvation. And the plight in Israel and the plight particularly in Jerusalem was horrific. Not only that, the temple had been destroyed, which was the center of their community. There was no community. There was no wealth. There was no safety net. There was no protection. It was lawlessness, and people were starving to death. So in some sense, Nehemiah had the best of a bad situation. He had food. He had a place to live. He had kind of a nice work environment. While the people in his homeland, which he still missed, he never lost who he was. He always was, a, in his mind, a Hebrew, a Jew, and he was always one who loved God. He didn't lose that. And so one day... As the story goes, 
Someone comes through, you know, there wasn't Instagram, no Snapchat, no Facebook, no Twitter. There's no way of finding out, no telephone, which do we even use those anymore, right? But the, there's none of that stuff to find out what was going on. So, so news didn't travel fast. But someone came through and he said, hey, how's Israel? How's Jerusalem? And I said, is it restored? Is it rebuilt? Is it coming back? And they're like, you haven't heard? No. The walls are in shambles. And he knew what that would mean. There is starvation, they're vulnerable, there, there's nothing, it is, it is horrific what is happening. People are dying. And this captured the heart of Nehemiah. You know, most people in this situation may have felt compassion, they may have felt hurt, they may have even prayed, but they wouldn't have gotten involved. I mean, think about it. What, what can I do? I'm a slave. I'm a slave to the guy who tore down the wall and decimated the country. I have no power. I have no authority. I have no wealth. I have no anything. I don't have any experience. I don't have anything. I'm just trying to survive myself. Ever felt that way? I'm just trying to survive myself. What can I do? I'll pray for them. I'll pray that God do something. Do something for my people. God, send somebody. I will pray for them. And if there's ever a chance I can do something, I'll do it. But for now, all I can do is pray. That, that sounds logical. That's probably what most people would do. But Nehemiah wasn't most people. Nehemiah was that, remember, he wasn't focused right here. He was always focused out there. He was a great leader because he defined success as not just his success. Success was helping other people experience success. And so he lived that way. And so because of that's who he was, he just couldn't sit by and do nothing. And so he said, I've got to help, even if it came at great personal cost. Because for him to go to the king, the one he's enslaved to, and ask for freedom, that was absurd. To ask for him for any help and build a wall, because Nehemiah would need help. He had no resources, and the people he was going to had no resources to rebuild the wall. He'd need the king's help. To ask for that was just not only absurd, it was suicidal, because it was considered offensive for a slave to ask anything like that. And so, but because of who Nehemiah was, and the leader he was, it's like, I can't just sit back and just feel bad for them. I can't sit back and just pray for them. I've got to do something. And so, he, he said, God, give me favor with the king. In other words, he said, God, I'm not going to sit back. I'm not going to do, do nothing and just pray. I'm going to go and do something. I'm going to go ask the king for help. So I, what I need for you is, it's funny, his prayer was not, hey, help them. It was, help me go before the king so I can help them. God, I'm going to risk, risk everything to do something. That's who he was. And so that's kind of where we pick up. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's the Babylonian king, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. The key thing there in, that, in, that, in those verses is where it says, in the month of Nisan. Now, this is about, this means this, this interaction with the king is about five months after he heard about what was happening. 
Five months after, he said, God, I'm, he was so brokenhearted and so burdened that he just had to do something. Even the, the only thing he knew to do was to go for the king, and it was suicide. I mean, that's how passionate he was about helping. That's how urgent he was about helping. I've got to go do something. I have got to help these people. God, give me favor with the king. I've got to do something. And then what does he do? He waits five months before he does anything. Here's a guy that was so heartbroken, so moved, so passionate, so intentional on, on what's happened that he's determined that he'd have to do something even if it has come at great cost, and he, so he waits five months. What? What happened? Got cold feet, maybe? Had doubts? I mean, because if I go to the king... This could happen, and this could happen, this could happen. None of them are good. No. What you see here is great leadership. You see, Nehemiah understood that just because you, want, you may want to say something, or you can even do, say do something, you may want to say something or do something, and just because, listen, just because something needs to be said or done, doesn't mean it needs to be said right now. You see, leaders understand that there is a big difference between wanting to say something to you and wanting you to truly hear what I have to say. Well, those are two different things. You see, wanting to say something, that's about me and my desire. When I want to say something or I think something needs to be said, that is all about me. It's about me telling you what you need to know. It's about me telling you what you need to hear. It's about me getting the satisfaction of, of getting this off of my chest and telling you what I believe you need to hear. And maybe it is what you need to hear. But needing to say something, wanting to say something is all about me and where I'm at and my need to communicate to you. It is about me and my desire. But wanting you to hear, truly hear what I have to say, is all about you. It's about making sure you're at a place, emotionally, mentally, that you're at a place, and that there is the best time to communicate to you maybe what I want to say, or maybe what actually needs to be said, so that you, it has the greatest chance for you to truly hear what I have to say. See, this is a failing of a lot of people, especially people who are trying to lead. We think that if something needs to be said, well, then it needs to be said. That if I feel like you need to know something, and maybe you need to know it, or, or I feel like I want to say something to you, then I need to say it. But sometimes, Something that needs to be said, well, it needs to be said, but it needs to be said at a time in a way that will increase the chance that that other person will hear, truly hear what needs to be said. And great leaders get this. 
And it takes to do this, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of strength. I can't imagine the amount of patience and internal strength it took for, for, for Nehemiah to go in day in and day out looking and thinking, is this the day, is this the day, is this the day? And it's no, it's not the day, it's not the moment. His just intuitiveness figured out it wasn't the day, it wasn't the moment. Oh my. And so he doesn't show sadness, he does, he does his job responsibly looking. And then that moment comes, and he does it. Nehemiah didn't wait five months because he was scared or because of cold feet. He waited, or because he was avoiding controversy. Sometimes that's why we wait. That's not why he waited. He waited because he was a good leader, and he understood the goal is not to say what needs to be said. The goal is for you to hear what needs to be said. Parents, I I have three kids, and it's amazing how your children can be the greatest source, uh, the greatest object of your love and frustration all at the same moment. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes they don't get that I have traveled the road they're on and I have experienced a lot of things and I have done the wrong thing many, many times. And I've learned from that. And if they'll listen, you know, I'm not always right, but there's a lot of stuff just because I made the bad decision that they can learn from me so they don't have to make the same bad decision, and they need to know that. But you know what? It's not just about what your kids need to hear. It's about you discerning when to communicate that when they are at the right time, when that, that window is open, they're emotionally, mentally in the right moment, the right atmosphere where they will hear what you have to say. Same thing if you're a kid. It doesn't matter whether you're a kid as a teen or whether you're an adult kid. The thing about parents, I mean, you can be an adult and your parents your parents can frustrate you. I hate to tell you that if you're a teen, that you think when you get to be an adult, your parents stop frustrating you. It doesn't stop. But you know what? Sometimes there's a great temptation when you're the kid, whether you're a teen or an adult, to bark back because they frustrate you for different reasons as you go through the years, but they frustrate you. And you want to say what you think needs to be said. But that doesn't mean just barking back is the best way for you to make sure they hear what you truly want them to hear. <laughs> I tell you, if we got this, just this one principle, if we got this, you know what we'd end up being? We'd be wiser bosses. We'd be better friends. We'd be more helpful teammates. Like Nehemiah, we get a whole lot more out of the people around us. And that's what leaders do. So he found that moment, and he takes the risk and asks the king. That's another little side note. You're not a leader unless you're taking risk. You're just not a leader unless you're taking risk. If you're always trying to keep everybody happy, always keep people applauding you, always trying to keep the boat from rocking, you're not leading. Let me just tell you that. That's a whole thing for another day, but you can't lead unless you're taking risks. 
So he takes the risk and he goes. And because he asked at the right time, at the right way, with God's favor, the king agrees. Crazy, but he does. The king says, I'll let you go back. And he also gives him letters which he can go as he's going back because he had no wealth, no money. And the people in Jerusalem had no wealth, no money to get the supplies to rebuild the wall. He says, I'll give you these letters. And as you go, you'll go past people who will have the materials and supplies. And this is a letter from the king saying to give you what you need. So he took them. And he set out to go back. And he gets back and he begins to walk around and surveys what needs to be done. And he gets a plan. Nehemiah chapter 2, back down at verse 15, it says this. So I, went up, so I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. No one really knows why he's back. He shows up and got all this stuff with him. And they're like, who is this guy? You know? Then I said to them, and look how he says this. Look how he words this. See the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. He has a plan. He has a vision, what needs to be done. But notice that he doesn't cast it in the you. He doesn't say, you know, here's what you guys need to do. You need to get organized. You need to build this wall. You need to do this. You need to do that. Because, you know, I'm from, I'm from Babylon. I'm probably, I can go back there. Here, but you're in this mess, so you need to get to work. He doesn't do that. He doesn't cast it in the, in the, in, in the me either. He doesn't say, well, here, I, I'm here. I brought all this stuff. I've got a plan. I'm going to build this wall. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the savior of the moment. Notice he doesn't cast his plan or vision in the power of of you or in the power of me. You see, great leaders understand the power of casting vision and the power of we. He says, we are in the situation. Let us rebuild the wall so that we will no longer be in disgrace. In other words, people won't laugh at us because we have no wall and no protection. He cast it in this. This is not you in the situation. It's not about me being the savior of the situation. This is what we are doing. This is the situation we are in, and we can overcome it. He cast it in the power of we. Listen, next time your kids get into a mess, mom, dad, try to stay away from just couching everything in the verbiage of you need to. Well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this. Instead, say something like this. What can we do to get out of this? What can we do to move forward? No, we need to get you to a better place. So, so what, what can we do to do this? Why don't we think about doing this? Casting a vision in the power of we. Next time your work culture gets all sideways, you know, you can been there, right, and the tension is great, and everybody's walking on eggshells. Why don't you stand up instead of saying, he's the problem. If she would just, if everyone would listen to who? Me. We would. Instead of that, why don't you say something like this? You know, we could have a great culture here. So what if we tried this? 
Or, or, or how about we trying that? You know, you know we, we could do this, and it may make things better for all of us. It's still you know, a vision that you have. It's still a plan that you have. But instead of casting it in the power of you or me, there's, Nehemiah understood what great leaders understood, that there is something important, something powerful in casting a vision or a plan in the power of we. <laughs> great leadership. So he lays out a plan, and he broke down the building of the wall, because there's this big wall, and it's going to be a challenge, not just because there was a big wall around the city, but because he didn't have a construction crew bringing in. The construction crew were the people that were living there, and these were bakers and you know, stable people and herdsmen. These weren't some great construction company. So he's going to take a plan. And so he, he decided that, you know, what we'll do is, is so we won't have a bunch of chaos and everything, we'll just break down each and give people a section of the wall to build. Here's your wall. Here's your responsibility. And, and we just give people different sections of the wall to build. And then everybody build their section. But the challenge of that is how do you know if someone's going to do a good job? How do you know if Bob here is going to do a great job and his is good, but... Sal over here is just kind of like, okay, whatever. I just want to get it over with. And he just goes in there and does a wall that's going to be easily knocked down. Well, that doesn't affect, that affects everything. So how are you going to make sure that people understand the value and do a great job? Look at what he does. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 10. Adjoining this, Jedediah, son of Harumoth, repairs, uh, made repairs opposite his house. Haddish, son of Hashabnia, made repairs next to his house. Why these people couldn't be named Bob, I don't know. But anyway. Now down to verse 23. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Notice what he did here? He said, here's your section of the wall, Bob. Where was that section of the wall in relation to Bob? It was outside his house. He found all these people and go, oh, you want to know what section of your wall is? It's the section of the wall right here outside your house. Oh, your section of the wall is the section of the wall, catty corner to your house. You see, one thing that, that Nehemiah understood, this is great leadership IQ right here, is he asked, you can almost sense he asked himself while making the plan, what am I going to do to make sure that everyone does a fantastic job? Because these guys aren't all builders. I know. I'll sign them a section of the wall that's near their own home. Because if there's any section of the wall you want to make sure was the best built section, that a, that a thief or an opposing force could not easily overcome and start causing Havoc and damage and killing. It was the section that was right outside your house. You see, great leaders, transformational leaders, always ask, do the people around me grasp the value or importance of what I'm asking them to do? That's really what he was asking. Nehemiah saying, how do I get them to understand the value or the importance of of building their section of the wall really, really well. How do I get them to that place? <laughs> if they don't, how can, I, how can I get them to see 
that what I'm asking of them is important. Great leaders do this, whether you're uh, as a great parent or coach or boss or friend or teammate. They're always striving to help people that they influence or people that they are asking something from, people that they lead. How can I help them see the value of what I'm asking of them? How can I help my team see the value of what I'm requiring out of them to get ready for the game? How can I help the people that work under me how, how can I help them see the value of what I'm asking of them? How can I help my kids see the value of what I'm asking about them? See, great leaders don't just give the what out. You know what? Here's what I need from you. Here's what I need you to do. Here's the quota. Here's the requirement. Here's the expectation. That's the what. Great leaders don't just answer the what question to the people that they're leading or influence. Great leaders understand I've got to equally answer the why question. The what comes easy and is automatic. Sometimes you don't even come up with that in your office. That quote is handed to you to hand out. That's the what. That's easy to communicate. But too many people that are in positions of leadership don't understand that it's also, if not more important, to answer the question of why. Because why is what helps people understand the value of what you're asking of them. Great leaders, when they're getting a plan and when they're trying to figure out how to communicate that plan, they always understand that I have to answer two questions. I have to answer what? What do I, what do they, making sure they know what I want out of them, what I expect of them, what I need out of them, what, what, what's the requirements. But I also equally have to spend time on making sure that I'm constantly communicating the why. Why we're doing this. Why this is important. Why? Because in the why, they'll understand the value of the what. Nehemiah got this. The what was, we got to build the wall for them to make sure they understand the value of building a strong wall. I'm going to put it in front of their house so I can go to them. Hey, I need you to build this wall and I need it to be the best wall. And you know why? Because it's right outside your house. And that's the section you want built better than any other. Nehemiah didn't just answer the what. He answered the why. Great leaders always answer both. And then, Nehemiah got what every great leader gets. If you're going to lead out in something, you're going to get something. You may get success, I don't know. But you're always going to get this. If you lead for any period of time, you're always going to get this. He got critics. He got mockers. He got complainers. He got people saying, no, no, no. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse number 1 says this. When Sanballat heard... That they were rebuilding the wall, he's just a thug, just a jerk. You know, you got him. You got him at your workplace, you got him at school, you got him in your life, maybe in your family. And Samuel had heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria and said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Remember, this, was the, this is the group that's left, or the group that's starving to death, barely making it feeble. Who are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? They're not builders. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they, build the, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble and burned as they are? He's talking about just all the rubble left when the Babylonians destroyed the wall. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stone. Just mocking. Listen, you step out 
people are going to start criticizing. People are going to start telling you how your vision and your dream can't happen. They're going to complain. They're going to moan. And their motivations are all different kinds. Maybe because they think they know a better plan. Maybe because they're jealous. I don't know. You know, who, their motivation can be so many different things. But let me tell you what Nehemiah did in response. Nothing. For most part, he just ignored it. He, you know, there was a little bit of engagement at different times, but really, for the most part, he absolutely ignored it. <laughs> and this is, this is so important today, because if you lead for any period of time in anything, lead out in anything, more get ready. People are going to criticize you. People are going to complain. People are going to post that post that doesn't have your name in it, but you know that in everybody knows it's about you. People are going to talk behind your back, but the thing about talking behind somebody's back, it rarely stays behind their back. Somehow, through some way, it gets back in front of their face, and it will with you, and you're going to hear it. The wisest thing you can do, the leader thing you can do, is do exactly what Nehemiah did. For the most, point, point, for the most part, just ignore it. Because you know what all those little voices are chipping at you? They're just distractions. Don't get distracted. Keep moving toward the goal that God has placed in your heart. Keep moving toward the dream that you are passionate about. Keep moving toward that thing that you know, you know that you are, that this is what is a, you're about for this season of your life. Keep moving. Why? Because that's what great leaders do. And the only criticism you listen to, listen to this, the only criticism you listen to is from the people that have proven that what they want most is your success. That's the people you listen to. I'm not saying you always know what's right and you're always doing what's right and you don't, that a little criticism here and there isn't, isn't, uh, is always a bad thing. No, no, sometimes we're not right and we need to have some constructive criticism. Listen, but listen, the people you listen to are the people that you have seen by the pattern of their life in your life is that what they want most is not for you to listen to what they do or you listen, what they want most out of life is for you to be a success. Then you may want to lean in a little bit. But outside of that, you know what leaders do? They expect critics. They just expect it. And they have a proper perspective on what critics and complainers and mockers are. They are simply nothing more than a distraction. And leaders refuse to get distracted from what is in their heart. And they don't engage it because engaging it just means you're distracted from moving to what you've been called to move toward. That's Nehemiah. That's why Nehemiah is truly one of the most profound leaders in human history. And it's why that not only did he take this ragtag group of people and rebuild this wall, but history tells us that he rebuilt it in record time. The people in your world, they're going to be people that need you to lead. And it doesn't matter whether you're the guy with the title or not. You may not be the guy in the office or in the family or in your friendship or on your team that has the title of team captain or boss or leader. But leading isn't about the position. Leading is all about influence. It's about influencing people to move in a better direction. 
So step up. Lead. And if you want to know how to be a great leader, pick up this book. If nothing else, just go back and read the story of Nehemiah, one of the most fantastic and most accomplished leaders in human history. 